0: Hi everyone and good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's first broadcast of 2021. Today is Tuesday, January 5th, 2021. This is probably my favorite topic and and maybe the easiest one for me to present on because of, of a couple of things. Number 1, I think about it more than any of the the subjects that I speak about because it's my job, because it's what I do. And number 2 because I had the good fortune uh, to have a therapist who, who I, I believe is one of the best therapists that there is in the country. She's has decades of experience and tremendous amounts of education and a thirst for learning. She's written somewhere around 20 books. Some of them are, are in the range of 500 pages. And for the past 22 years, I've had the opportunity to sit in her office and to learn from her. Not only, of course, did we do therapy, but... Through that process, and sometimes through my own supervision and my own growth process as a wilderness therapist and running a wilderness therapy program, I've had the opportunity to learn under her mentorship. So, when I when I talk and teach, so much of what I'm I'm teaching you and and talking about comes from Dr. J.D. Gill. Dr. J.D. Gill is her her uh, author name, and and she goes by Jamie. So you'll hear me refer to her as both often. So with that preamble, with that prelude, I'm going to talk about um, therapy tonight and what to look for in a therapist, um, but I'm also going to, of course, talk about things that lend themselves well well to parenting and lend, lend themselves basically to all relationships, that there are, of course, some unique differences in all of our relationships, whether it be the parent-child relationship, the the spousal relationship, or the client and uh, the, the the therapist relationship but there also are some fundamental pieces that they have in common. I, I've learned this about therapy I want to share these two thoughts about my own processes of therapy. One's more recent. Um, I've thought about this idea and I've talked about this recently that I do believe that so much of what uh, challenges us today, in addition to or along with the circumstances, of our lives that that are happening today, so much of what challenges us or or prevents barriers for us kind of uh, as we move forward in our relationships and our lives has its origins in our undealt with, unresolved, unconsidered trauma. And so part of our job is to go back and to understand and to unravel that, and we do that among other places in therapy. Now. What I talk about and have taught about recently is, um, it's not so much a going back and remembering. If you happen to be my client, um, because of this this belief that I have, this experience that I have, we're not going to talk about what do you remember with your mother and your father, what do you remember in your childhood. Those topics will come up from time to time, but but essentially, you see how a person shows up today in their circumstances, and then in their relationships, and you you learn about their earliest contexts. You learn about where they came from. And you kind of help the client feel their way back. Just recently, I had a session with a client where we were talking about, we were really getting into some, some ways that they were feeling constrained today, that they were feeling fearful and anxious. And Some of the messages were very vivid as they were working their way through this. And so we were able to go back and say, there's some things in your past that taught you that there was a right way to be. Some of the language that you're using to describe your inner child, for example, or to describe your circumstances or your challenges today, some of the language you're using tells me a little bit about your earliest context. And so... I suggest that and then I ask questions. Where does this, what does this feel like? Where does this come from? Where is this voice? Is there any, do you feel like this is a familiar echo from your past? So as you show up in therapy, you show up with with all of your contexts from the past and all of the messages, the ideas, the, the beliefs that you have about yourselves. And a therapist is to, to highlight those, to, to show you, to reflect back what they see about what you're what you're presenting with. And, and again, if we have the belief, and I, I happen to, that those things came from earlier experiences, then we start to make connections. But it, it's not so much a, a memory that we have that, that comes out of the blue, more like it's a, a way of kind of following our current feeling, feeling, circumstances, challenges, dilemmas, and and, and having some idea that they may come from past relationships and and messages and contexts and seeing if we can make a connection to that. And in my own experience, both as a client, of course, but also as a therapist, those over time become very vivid and rich and clear. And we're able to see things that we weren't able to see before, remember things that we couldn't remember before. As I've said to you, even as as recently as the last broadcast, early in therapy with my therapist, she would say to me, well, this is what your context taught you, and this is what your mother and father taught you. And I remember thinking explicitly, I haven't told you about them. I I don't know how you could possibly imagine that you could make those statements if I really haven't told you any stories. First of all, I don't have vivid memories of of those experiences as, as a child. But now, years later, it's crystal clear to me. And i it's like I see, it's not like I've had a lot more uh, memories come up, but I see those old messages more clearly. I, I see how my parents were compromised, how my earlier contacts, teachers, peers, the, the, the dominant culture that I grew up in, I see so much more clearly the messages that, that they gave to me. The second point that I want to make about therapy that I've been talking about lately is what I have learned by being in therapy specifically with this wonderful, gifted genius of a therapist for these past 22 years is that this becomes a bar or a standard that I apply to all of my other relationships. I know what a mature response looks like. I know what a healthy response, uh, an empathic response, a clear response, I know what a self looks like. And I know what it doesn't look like because I've sat with somebody who has all of those characteristics and, and attributes. And so when I go out into the world, you know, I, I, leave, I tell my therapist something and she listens and validates and, and seeks with all of her energy to understand me, which she does very well, and then I go back out into the world. I go home to my wife, to my children. I talk to my colleagues, my friends. And I, I measure them against her. Not, not in, a, in necessarily a judgmental way, but I say, that's not about me. My feelings are okay. I'm not crazy. And, and by that I mean, I'm crazy, but just the run-of-the-mill crazy like everybody else. And, and your reaction to me what I say and do and feel is about you. Because I have an experience of somebody having a dramatically, in many cases, uh, diametrically opposed type of reaction to me when I share these same kinds of thoughts and feelings. So therapy is an experience. And that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. It's not the information. It's not the, the techniques. But it is it is in its ideal sense an experience with a capable, adequate, empathic other. I I wanted to start with with the first of my quotes this evening from Fred Rogers to highlight this idea that it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily come from therapy or have to be a therapist. And if you haven't seen both the documentary that came out in the last couple of years and the 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 motion picture with Tom Hanks uh, starring as Fred Rogers, if you haven't watched those, I suggest that you watch those to understand what we're talking about tonight. I, again, this is a good example. When I was a child and I flipped onto Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, I couldn't stand it. I, I thought it was condescending. Uh, I might have flipped to it. I, I might have been very adultified or parentified. That could have been part of the problem, which I was because of my circumstances. And so Fred Rogers seemed like he was talking down to me and condescending and talking to what I would have said at the time was were, we're babies. But now as a, a mature adult, he speaks to my heart with, with a, a piercing and loving clarity. And you can find lots of wonderful quotes, quotes by Fred Rogers, but I, I just pulled this one. He said, I don't think anyone can grow unless he's loved. Exactly as he or she is now. Appreciated for what he or she is, rather than what he or she will be. Even in our program with young people, I I make it a point to say, often, nothing's wrong with you. Yes, you make mistakes. But but no more than me, for sure. Just just the sheer volume of of mistakes that I've made, I, I win. Maybe you can catch up to me someday as you grow older, but I've made as many mistakes as you. But you're hurting and you're scared. And these mistakes are an attempt to protect you from those painful, uncomfortable feelings. And our job is to first show up as a healthy self, an adequate self. I use the word adequate when I talk about therapists because for me it's a compliment. It's not setting the bar low. It's just to say that you're, you're still human as a therapist. And, and your job is to, to do no harm, first of all, to get out of the way. So our job is to show up as an adequate therapist or an adequate parent. Show up with a, a sense of self. And the boundaries that come with that sense of self, right? Right? and then to, to see the other person past the symptoms past the behavior to their their wounded fearful scared authentic self but we don't know to do that because we were taught most of us by the way when i say most of us i usually mean all of us i'm sure there are acceptance to some of these ideas but i just haven't met anybody yet I've met people that are defended against this idea, but I really uh, haven't met anybody that I that I've gotten to know that this doesn't apply to. That that we we weren't we didn't grow up in contexts where Mr. Rogers was the way of being. We grew up in contexts where we had to feel bad, ashamed, guilty. We had to get our, our butt kicked to be accountable. Most of us grew up in contexts where our behavior and our symptoms were the problem and the way to get rid of them was to punish them. We grew up in contexts where the people that were in charge were afraid to love us as we are. We're afraid to, to send messages like nothing's wrong with you, even though you make mistakes. They were afraid that if they did that, that everybody would run crazy. they knew no motivation that came from a place of love and unconditional positive regard and if you are the exception to that if you grew up in that context where you were seen like mr rogers would see you then all the all the all the better how wonderful it is and how lucky you are the epigraph for this chapter says We learn how to be a therapist by practicing therapy. It's good for the therapist, but it's not good for the client. You know, first and foremost, what to look for in a therapist is somebody who doesn't set themselves as the standard of excellence, of of the beacon of mental health. Somebody who understands they make mistakes, they have flaws. It comes up in their lives and in their therapy. And they may not share with you every story or example, but there's a feeling when you sit with somebody. Many of my professors who taught therapy kind of hid behind this 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 defense, this, this desk, this mantle of, of being a professor, being a teacher. And what I see now for most of my professors, not all of them, but many of them, is that they were terrified They were terrified that they would become exposed. They were terrified to be human with us. So a good therapist knows that they are a mess. And they have made it a practice in their lives. And in many cases, a a, a practice that that continues to this day. They have made it a, a practice in their lives to do their work. You know, I said this to somebody just the other day during an interview on the podcast. When I was trained in graduate school and the subject of of self-disclosure came up, um, my professors, every professor virtually that that talked about this or taught on this subject taught us techniques that, that really taught us how not to answer that question. We were supposed to, if a client asks you, do you go to therapy? If a client asks you certain questions that that are personal, you learn from professors to, to ask questions back to them, like why does it matter to you or what would that mean to you? And I don't think that those are horrible questions. Those are important to ask, but very few professors gave us the tools to say it's okay to to talk about and to share number one because I don't think they had an experience with it 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 terrified them to be at the same level with the clients so they didn't know how to teach it and number two we students were over our heads we ran over our heads from the beginning I joke with my wife about it They, they don't really teach you how to do therapy they teach you techniques and skills, and models, and interventions. And I suspect the reason they don't teach you how to do therapy is because they don't know how to do it. They know all about psychology, and then they know very little about the process that I'm going to be describing tonight. Evoke therapy programs, both our wilderness therapy programs and our intensive programs, would be considered experiential. You know, the the wilderness, the being outside, living in small groups, groups, nomadic, primitive living model, which is our model, becomes a microcosm for life. And all of the the, the richness, the grist for the mill comes in that process in the day-to-day small group communal living. In our intensives program, there's psychodrama, right? Role-playing, meditation, mindfulness, small group exercises. So we are an experiential program. So what I'm about to say is not to take away from my belief that those are wonderful, wonderful um, vehicles. I, I think the most effective I've seen, vehicles to to dispense uh, therapy. But the real experience with therapy, the real experience... Uh, with with group work, with with 12-step work, is showing up and and taking the risk to tell the truth about yourself for fear that the folks in the room, whether it be a group or a therapist, are going to respond essentially the same way previous contexts have responded to you, to tell you where you're wrong, to tell you what you don't get, The experience of therapy is is the therapeutic relationship. And if the therapist knows what they're doing and and knows what I'm talking about, they will create an experience that that creates a competing experience with your previous experiences. You will experience over time what it's like to be in the presence of a capable adult who has empathy, non-judgment, whose anxiety isn't spilling over on you, which all of which happened to us as children. So I write, we can be told that we are okay, but we must experience actually being okay by having somebody reflect that back to us again and again. And the ways that, 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 that people do or don't reflect that back to us are extraordinarily subtle. I'll give you, the I think, the most subtle example a very clear example of this. I wrote about this for Psychology Today, that when you graduate a client, for example, when you tell a client as a therapist, when you initiate the idea and the process and you say to a client, I think you're done. And this way of talking today, that's not your job, ever. If a a client says to you, I think I'm done, you can definitely say, okay. But but here's the thing. I've heard recently individuals tell me that they, they've said to their therapist, I'm done. And the therapist has shamed them and told them what a mistake it was. I've heard therapists say, I feel betrayed by you or you have to come back and meet with me one more time. All kinds of just crazy, crazy responses that have nothing to do with the, the process of real therapy. I had an adult friend who was ready to leave his his treatment center for for substance abuse. And when he announced to his therapist at the treatment center as an adult that he was going to leave, the therapist took it personally. Felt offended. Felt betrayed. And my friend said to me, and this was after the fact, after he was home, he said to me, I knew right then and there that this had nothing to do with me. It was not my job Never was my job to take care of the therapist. So the therapist is with you in a different way, in a different way than most people have been with you. I'll often be talking about a certain idea, concept, and therapy about how we show up if we're healed. I'll, I'll use stories and metaphors, and people will say to me, how do you do that? How do you get to the place where you can set a clear boundary or where you have a sense of self? And I, I, I teach this, there is an idea and there's some wonderful artwork in, in this chapter from my, from my son, Jake, and my daughter who kind of directed him on this idea. There's some wonderful artwork in there that shows this point that um, there's an idea in popular culture and mainstream culture that we shouldn't need validation, that, that self-esteem is an inside job, Right? And the fact of the matter is we are social beings. The, the, the strength of, of humanity is our connectedness to each other. We, by ourselves, are some of the most helpless creatures. As, as infants and children, we are the most pathetic creatures. I'm not sure if this is absolute, but very few, if any, creatures on earth stay with their parents for as long as we do depend upon their parents for as long as as we do so we are built to be in relationship so this idea that self esteem can happen through reading self help books right through journaling through other things it, it's not something that i that i share necessarily that there has to be some experience with another maybe a higher power can be that experience but we have to have some experience with an other to grow so what i explain is i explain the idea that the goal is to be with somebody who doesn't value your strengths and your gifts your talents your 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 smarts your beauties whatever it is how fast you can run how well you play the violin how way, how great you can draw the shape of your 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 jawbone, right? You don't spend time with somebody who values those. That's not what a therapist does. But a therapist values all of you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. A therapist sees what you think and have been taught is ugly and reprehensible and unacceptable and repulsive, and they understand it. When you get sick of yourself talking in therapy, when you worry that the therapist is getting tired of you, when you find yourself wanting to please or impress the therapist, that's the moment when an adequate therapist really shows up. When when clients say to me, I know I shouldn't say this, or I know this is blaming, or I know this is justifying, or I know I'm making excuses, I know immediately I'm about to hear something important, something of their authentic or real self instead of their false or their idealized self. So the goal is to spend time with somebody who sees all of you and honors it and values it. The fact is that external validation is necessary, I write. The key is to find a source who values the authentic self rather than some part object. The therapist must remain curious, and this quality requires the courage of not knowing. Now, I think for me, what, what happens for me when I read this, this quote that I wrote, the therapist must remain curious, and this quality requires the courage of not knowing. It's one of the things that lends itself really well to parenting, because I think a lot of us think we're supposed to have answers. We're supposed to have your answers. Jamie Gill writes in the forward of this book, If the therapist has answers, they are the therapist's answers. And go find another therapist. She says it plainly. I remember one particular time when I was working with a client that I'd worked with a couple with a couple of their children in the program and worked with them for a long time and they were coming to me for some consultations with another child and it was a tremendously difficult situation. Every potential choice and they're, they're the, the the field of options for them there were legitimate risks involved nothing was a clear solu- solution and i took this case to my therapist because i use her for supervision and i said here's i laid out the case it took me about 15 minutes to tell all of the, the the intricacies of this case and i said i just don't know what to tell them i don't know what to do And she paused and she said, good, keep it that way and tell them you don't know what to do. And it just came to me, all of it. I thought, that's right. I don't know what to do. And I need to tell them that. And I need to remember that. Is is true really in all of of my cases, even those that that I, I think have clear answers. I can share with you what's worked for me in similar circumstances. We can talk about ideas, but I don't know your truth. When I went back and told this family, I don't know the answer. They were incredibly relieved and relaxed. Immediately you could see in their countenance, in their body posture, you could see their nervous system relax. And we started on a path for them to find their truth, their authentic self, their decision, with an awareness that this was an unsolvable problem without a perfect answer. But that gave them the courage to to make a decision, to make a choice, which they did. I shared this this next series of, of, of ideas over many podcasts. This is where it shows up in the book, how people respond to the other. So you can use this. I, I think this is one of the most simple things. This this is the only thing of self-help that we have anywhere in our house, posted anywhere. And this is taped to our refrigerator. The The safe and the unsafe ways to respond. <clears throat> Not only does it apply to parents and spouses, but it, this is, these are things... You, basically, I came up with this list. When I wrote this book, I came up with this list by thinking of the ways that my therapist has responded to me over the hundreds and thousands of hours that we've met together. Responses like, thank you for telling me, tell me more. I appreciate knowing, glad you told me. Thanks, that sounds hard. I'm here, I'm listening, you're not alone, that makes sense. I can relate. You must have a good reason. I'd like to understand. All of those responses are what she said to me. Not just when I've shared with her a dilemma, but but when I've told her about things that she's done or said that have upset me, that I've been confused by. Contrasted with the unsafe responses, such as, that's silly, you're overreacting, you're too sensitive, you're scaring me, you're selfish, you should and fill in the blank after that. Don't pay them any mind. They're just jealous. Ignore them. You'll get over it. Look on the bright side. Why did you do that? Have you tried this or that? That's your depression, anxiety, insecurity, narcissism, defense, etc. That's what it looks like. And, And you know, maybe this chapter more than any other chapter, highlights a point in parenting and a point in therapy. You can't manualize this. It's not that you say these things because they're the right thing to say. You say these things because this is what people who have an adequate sense of self say. Now, like some skills and tools, and I, I talk about this clearly in the book, you can practice a behavior and let it take root in you. Learn from what you say, hear yourself say it, stop yourself from responding in these unsafe ways, and allow that shift in behavior to teach you something, absolutely. This is really a shift from from the idea that the therapist is the guru. The draw for the client, for the therapist to be a guru is number one, then somebody has the answer. And number two, they're not really responsible for the the deeper, more difficult journey of finding self. The draw for the therapist is you get to be a guru. Admired. Sat upon a pedestal. But as we know, pedestals are no place to live. Over and over and over and over again, people come to me and ask me the question, what should I do? It makes sense, right? They, they, think, they think that a therapist is a, is a sage person with wise advice. That's not a an insane thought. But when I teach therapists, I say, don't ever answer that question. First of all, it doesn't make sense from the perspective that there's no such thing as should. I don't even know what that means. It's it's The word should is tied to a context that I'm not necess- necessarily relating to. Here's what you might do. Here's what it might look like. So many of, of, of my teaching, not just on these podcasts, but in therapy you would find, are answers in the form of stories. You know, for example, this is what it would sound like. This is what a boundary would sound like if you weren't afraid. But I'm not telling you to say that. I'm just saying, and that's not the, th- the thing I just told you is not the answer. It's just an example of what it would sound like if you had a healthy sense of self. Which I'm not even saying that I have. but I, But I've seen it. I've seen it in stories and myths and movies and in others and in myself, every once in a while. Um, If we aren't supposed to have the answer, then what is the expertise of the therapist? In my opinion, the therapist is an expert, not on your life, but on creating a context where you can discover yourself, your authentic, strong, courageous self. And that means... You're going to have to look in dark corners and dark places. That means you're going to have to confront fears. That means you're going to have to confront the voices that are telling you that certain parts of you are unacceptable and they were wrong. But they told you that because they didn't know how to tolerate it or sit with it and sort of, instead of dealing with their own inadequacy, they made you the bad object and you the problem. And you went around and you believed it because that's what we do. I borrowed a quote in this chapter that says, the child that's abused by the parent doesn't stop loving the parent. They stop loving themselves. We internalize the feelings, the the, the sensations from our parents, the emotional climate from our family to be about us. So the therapist's expertise is creating an environment where you can Find yourself. I don't confront your defenses. I try to create an experience where you don't need them. Because defenses are there to prevent or protect against a threat. And if I can create an hour a week with you where you're not feeling threatened, you will reluctantly, but voluntarily lay down your defenses and start to become who you are. So this way of thinking is that the goal in therapy is not problem solving. You might be going to it because you're having panic attacks, right? Because you're you're, you're struggling with food issues, uh, sex in your marriage, uh, a child who's struggling with mental health issues, right? All of those are contexts that drive us into therapy. And D.W. Winnicott, the great psychologist, taught that it's the false self that brings into in, uh, us into therapy, that what therapy becomes is not what we start out thinking it is. We come in to solve the problem of our, of our struggling child. And for those of you and some of your names I recognize, many of them I recognize over the years, you keep coming back because you start to realize that, that, that the context is the child that's struggling and suffering, but that's not the issue. That just highlights the issue. That just activates the issue in me. I had a staff a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about something in... in in, in our in-service weekly in-service he said, but I I, I I am able to manipulate clients to do the right thing to do what I want them to do. Why shouldn't I do that? Why should why is that a bad thing? And I said, the problem with manipulating clients into doing the right thing is that they're going to leave eventually. And they're gonna meet somebody as charismatic and clever and manipulative as you. And some of those people aren't gonna have their best interest in mind. And really, you're, you're creating a dynamic with them where they're dependent upon somebody else to discover the, the, the truth, to tell them what to do. And so, yeah, if the goal is to reduce symptoms, If the goal is to stop bad behavior, then what you're saying works. But because at at Evoke, we don't believe that's the goal. We believe that the goal is the discovery and the development of a healthy self, you're actually contributing to the problem. And and the the development, the discovery and the development of a self is the number one idea, attribute characteristic in a person that creates resilience. But if you're just clever and manipulative, you're part of the problem. And that leads to this quote by J.D. Gill. I love this quote. The therapist or guide we choose must not duplicate the wounds of the past. Thus, if the therapist or guide knows what is right for us, and manipulates us to achieve these treatment goals, it is abuse, plain and simple. It is hard to see how good abuse ever cures bad abuse. And again, that's true for parents. Now, of course I offer skills and training and techniques. I tell all of our therapists, you can use EMDR, brain spotting, you can use cognitive behavioral therapy, you can use dialectical behavioral therapy, and the list goes on. Those are a part of your your tool set, but that's not the magic. Because if you have disdain for your client or anxiety to fix your client, they will feel that and and internalize that as the problem, and then they will seek to please you to preserve their sense of self. I'm gonna say that again. If you use these tools and techniques, and you think that's the thing, but you're really uncomfortable with your, your clients, the way they show up, and you're eager to fix them, they will internalize that the same way they've internalized earlier context to be that something is wrong with them, and they will try to please you so as to preserve their, their place, because abandonment is the worst thing for a human. Being an outcast is a a threat to our very existence. So therapy is about being with somebody in a different way. I write this. Identifying somebody's defense takes very little talent or knowledge. Learning how to be with somebody so they don't require the defense because they don't feel threatened is is what makes therapy unique. Therapy is an art and a way of being good therapy, adequate therapy. It's a safe place. It's a safe hour. And so you learn, today we were doing supervision with our therapists. I was doing some training and a, there was a circumstance set of circumstances and I said, what are examples, if you were responding from your own trauma, how would you respond to the parent phone call that's being discussed here today? And people said, I would be defensive, I would talk fast, I would over-identify, I would apologize profusely, I'd feel guilty, to blame, responsible, and they described perfectly all the ways that an inadequate therapist responding from trauma would respond. And then I said, and how would you respond if you weren't responding from trauma? Curiosity, patiently, empathically, deliberately, flexibly, I would speak speak slowly and leave plenty of space for answers and ask lots of questions and genuinely apologize for anything that I did that contributed to the issue. So, therapy is this experience. When a client says, I can't make a mistake in therapy or I feel anxious other places but not here, I had a client recently say to me, that they're terrified all the time and anxious all the time. And I said, I don't see that from you. And they said, well, this is different. I can't make a mistake here. And then I said, maybe that's the problem. You are a really, really sensitive person, but your sensitivity is just tuning into what the environment is telling or teaching you. This is something I adapted. I I changed it a little bit, but it comes from Alice Miller's book, The Drama of the Gifted Child. The therapist may cloak his disapproval and derision behind abstract terms like borderline, obsessive regression, destructive, but unless he explores the three-year-old boy inside of himself, he will not see the parallel between these terms and garden-variety contempt. Your therapist doesn't have to be perfect, but they have to have some contact with their horrible, rotten self. They have to have some experience and awareness of it. From the great master therapist, Carl Rogers. When a person realizes he has been deeply heard, his eyes moisten. I think in some real sense, he is weeping for joy. It is as though he were saying, thank God someone hears me. Someone knows what it's like to be mean. And lastly with Jamie Gill, I read this, this is actually in the previous chapter on mental health, but I brought it into this presentation tonight because it's so important. It's important to recognize that the defense is doing important psychological work. Ripping away defenses does not improve the situation. Ripping away defenses does not improve the situation. Taking them away before the person is able to tolerate what the defense is masked Leaves the, defenses, leaves the person worse off than before. And here's the, 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 the payoff. Both cruel people and inadequate therapists are famous for a desire to destroy defenses without considering the cost. When you understand, this is, this is something I haven't said in a while. When you understand your child, this is really important for all of you. When you, when you understand your child, you don't go back and tell it to them. But you proceed with the, 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 the wisdom, the, the, the compassion that that knowledge has to offer you. Same with our therapists. I teach them. When I describe your, your client's narcissistic wound or your, your, the parent you're working with with their borderline features, whatever it is, their addictive features, Right, their depressive personality, whatever it is that I'm describing, and I kind of describe the 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 way that their personality is built. You then go back to that person knowingly. You know where their wounds are. You have a good guess at where they came from. You respond gently and patiently, and over time, you reflect back every tiny little step. Listen to this. This is what psychotherapy is, I think. You reflect back naturally every tiny little step towards authenticity. During supervision with my therapist some time ago, I was describing a session where I had this this client that was working with me for a lot of years, had come to a lot of amazing realizations about who they were. Done some amazing work. And in one session in particular, after sharing with me all of these wonderful insights, the next sentence or two out of their mouth was back in the old way, the mother tongue, right? So I said to my therapist, How do I help them? And she said, You simply say to them, I'm so glad with what you recognize. That's so amazing. And there was a a silence. And I realized what she was saying. You're right. You recognize the steps forward, the small steps forward. You reflect back. Each tiny little step toward authenticity. I talk about containing. Containing is a a psychological, a therapeutic term that, that describes this creating a space in the session, right? Obviously, it's not a physical space. It's a metaphor, a a word that we use as a metaphor because it can be virtual, it could be on a phone, it could be in a relationship in any way that that relationship exists. In this situation, Gil says, the contained is more or less fully felt and understood by the container. At the same time, the container can rely on additional resources to feed back to the contained a wider sense of the contained experience. Along with this is the experience for the contained that the container can adequately accept or manage what has been offered. In other words, I take you in. I have other resources to take you in and to reflect back a sense of okayness. And you have the experience of being okay. That's what all that jargon means. I metabolize the pain, the sadness, the 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 frustration, the difficulty in your dilemma. And I reflect back a sense of okayness. So what to look for in a therapist? How do you feel with them? And tell them. And when you challenge them, this is I think this is the magic technique. When you challenge them by telling them things that you don't like or, or that, that don't feel right to you, how do they respond? Do they put it back on you and make you the problem? Talk about how you're misinterpreting and misunderstanding? Because we already had parents for that. It's called gaslighting. We don't need to be told how our feelings are crazy. We need to be understood We need our feelings to make sense to us by having the container or the therapist understand them. So the magic technique is talk to the therapist about the therapist and the therapist relationship. And if you have an adequate one, they will say thank you. They will acknowledge the great courage that it took to challenge them. And they'll express gratitude for the honor of your trust. And you'll feel from them their ability to be human, which is to be flawed and imperfect, and a mess, and enough at the same time. It's not that this is, I, I use a lot of self-disclosure. Jamie uses a little bit less with me, but over and over again, she gives me the the sense, <laughs> the clear sense, and the, the the acknowledgement that she's a mess. What seems to be their goal? Is it to fix you or to see you? Are they anxious? And when I say anxious, you can substitute the word eager. Are they eager to fix your problems? Or are they eager to understand you? I tell the therapists that evoke this all the time. It's it's not a perfect idea, but clients ought to feel better after being around us. And that doesn't mean they're not going to feel pain and grief and sadness because that happens in therapy if therapy is effective often. Those kind of uncomfortable feelings come up but they won't feel alone or crazy. And the sweetness of not being alone in your unsolvable problems or your pain, that's priceless. Is it your agenda in therapy or theirs? I have no tolerance for a therapist whose agenda takes the primary focus in therapy. I just don't. See, in therapy, you, you pay the therapist for the time. That's the end of what you owe them. And if they can't help you, they send you to somebody who can. But you don't owe them anything else. You don't. How flexible are they? What if you came with your spouse without telling them? Would that throw them off their game? I have situations where people send their spouse, they'll call me ahead of time and say, can my spouse come instead of me? And my response is, okay, whatever works for you. I don't have rigid boundaries about who I won't or won't see in a family because I've been trained to be able to hold space for everybody while I'm talking to them. But I don't need to to have these these rigid boundaries around what therapy is going to look like. Are they able to own their limitations? Are they, do you get a sense from them? And are they making reference to the fact that they know that they don't know everything? I don't, I'm not trained in EMDR. I'm not trained in brain spotting. And if a client says to me that I'm seeing, I'm thinking about that, my response is, I've heard some people say great things about it. I don't specialize in sex therapy or eating disorders. So if you want somebody who specializes in that, I've heard people say that they prefer that. That's okay too. I focus on the process of being a human, of which all of those are, 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 are part part of it. Do they have advice? Do they use the word should and do they have solutions? I mean, those are those are pretty simple, but that's just... That's just their stuff. I teach the therapist, it's never the first mistake that's the the real problem in therapy. I say lots of stupid things in therapy. It's the second mistake that's the problem. If I present to you an idea, a concept, a tool, and you're resistant to it, it's my attachment to that that becomes the bigger mistake. If I'm able to drop it, that means I'm not attached to it. Emma Reedy, um, who works with us, my daughter, she she talks about this idea that a therapist's misinterpretation of a client is the therapist not understanding a client. So if you reflect back an interpretation to a client and you don't get them, no matter how confident you are, you've missed them. If nothing else, you're too far out ahead of them. So what are the take-home? Take Therapists are not the North Star of health. Hopefully they are an example of being human, but they're not the epitome of hell. Learn to trust your gut. And, and you can learn that by how you feel. Do you feel better? Do you feel seen? Do you feel safe? Do you feel like mistakes are okay? Do you feel like you have to say it the right way? Do you feel like you're being confronted on, on errors or, or language? You can ask difficult questions. I believe you 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 get to ask difficult questions and you you deserve I said difficult answers, but what I mean is intelligent answers. Smart answers. Does the therapist seem defensive at times and I sometimes am defensive, but can they come back and say I was being defensive? Or is that a pattern that they can never own? Does their model their technique or their agenda eclipses you. Does it seem more important than you? I remember I was sitting in a class, I, I went to listen to Dr. Gill's, one of, one of her classes at the University of Utah and there were graduate students learning to become therapists and she was teaching about various concepts and one of the, the, the students raised their hand and said, I am a cognitive behavioral therapist. That was who they were. And, and so then they asked a question about an agenda of cognitive behavioral therapy. And Jamie and I talked about it afterwards. She, she gave her a response. I actually raised my hand at that point and gave my response. But we, we, we chuckled about that because you're just a person who happens to know cognitive behavioral theory. But if the model is is primary, you will miss the client. You will try to find ways for the client to fit in to your model. So when I talk to therapists at Evoke, I say, you can use all that stuff. But what I'm talking about today, which is really uh, attachment theory and the the, the, the sense of, of that comes from psychodynamic theory, modern psychodynamic theory about understanding the relationship between the therapist and the client, that's the foundation of adequate therapy. All that other stuff, it's just stuff. How does the therapist handle feedback? If they are defensive and make it about you, you have a therapist that has not and is not doing their work. Do they remind you of Fred Rogers? Or, in contrast, do they remind you of your parents or your professors? You know, when you've shown your horrible rotten self and it's tolerated, that's the magic. That's when progress really accelerates. You know, I think it's that point often when you get tired of hearing yourself, or you think the therapist is getting tired of you. For me, when when a client starts to get to that place, I know we're getting somewhere. Can I be with them? Can I be with them when they're not entertaining me? Can I be with them when they're not impressing me? I've told the story about my friend who said that he stopped going to therapy because. He was lying to his therapist, to which I I, I I, chuckled and I said, everybody lies to their therapist. That's the whole thing. You keep going until you are able to not lie to your therapist. And it's okay. And they can see you. I tell the story at the end of this chapter where I sat having coffee with Jamie Gill at a conference that we were both, both attending. And so we had the opportunity to have a casual conversation. And she said to me, what was the thing that was the turning point for you? And I shared a couple of examples that I've shared uh, on the, on these broadcasts many times before moments when she said, you know, if you were having sex with a chicken, I would just want to understand you. I, 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 I shared those stories with her and, I said what about you when when was it when did it turn for you in therapy and she said you know i had two analysts one that went for 10 years one that went for eight years and around my my 16th year in analysis i said to my analyst i said i don't know how you can tolerate me and the analyst looked at her sincerely and said i think that's a really important thing for us to talk about And tears came to my eyes and I got chills and I said to her, it's so hard to imagine, isn't it, that somebody can tolerate you? And she said, it's almost unfathomable that somebody can tolerate you. And I I talk about this idea of looking for a therapist who looks for you. I am so lucky to have found one and she's not fired me yet after 22 years. I think she's going to have to die. She's 80 years old and I think she's going to have to die for our therapy to, to stop, which will be a, a sad day and I'll have to regroup and find another adequate therapist if I'm to find one, if I'm to continue. But that's the idea, is find somebody who can find you. I'm not going to take questions tonight because we're up against the hour. Malia, if you could save all the questions, I will address them in the next Q&A, which will be our next our next broadcast. So... Sorry about that. My books, The Journey of the Rogue Parent and The Audacity to Be You, which are born out of our program, our wilderness program, and our intensive program and Jamie Gill um, are available on Amazon, also on Audible. I narrated the second book. It is out now on Audible and also iTunes. Upcoming intensives, we have a January um, 13th online intensive. I'm running the one in February, February 24th. And by the way, that is almost full. Uh, If so, we're going to have to open up one, one in March um finding you too will be in person in April uh Healthcare workers good news for us Healthcare workers in Utah are now getting the vaccine so all the evoke staff and therapists are getting the vaccine right now. If you want to do a pursuits and adventure trip in between programs at the end therapy light uh, a family reconnect while doing some fun things those are available contact Sarah at evoketherapy.com We also have a spring break trip. March 12th through 14th for ages 18 and older, a multi-sport trip, wonderful therapy light. We have online parent support groups uh, for wilderness parents. The next one will be January 7th, that's in two days, at 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time. And our next intensives alumni support group will be January 12th at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Contact Malia at evoketherapy.com for more information. We ask all current parents to go to six 12-step support groups to try them on. Any combination of Al-Anon, CODA, Family, Families Anonymous, or adultchildren.org. You can also go to refugerecovery.org or nami.org for other classes and resources in your area that are free. All of those are free. All of these broadcasts are available on your podcast platforms. Just search Finding You and Evoke Therapy Podcast. Share, rate us, subscribe, give us feedback there. You can also go to soundcloud.com. You can find Evoke Therapy on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy or the Evoke Therapy Intensives on Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy Intensives. On Facebook, you can find both programs at Evoke Therapy Programs or Evoke Therapy Intensives and also our Evoke Therapy blog. There are two recent blogs from our intensive uh, clinical director, Travis Slagle. One just got posted. One will be posted in the coming days. Take a look at those. And then our next broadcast will be January 11th where I'll take all of these questions that are left over and any new ones you want to present to me at that time. That's January 11th, 6.30 p.m. Mountain Time, question and answer. You're welcome to invite extended family and friends and siblings to attend that. Thank you for joining me this evening for and on behalf of the people that you love and that love you. Thank thank you for being willing to do your work. Thank you for making your life the project. Um, There's nothing more relieving for Uh, somebody in your family who's struggling with mental health and addiction for for you to make your life the project. So thank you for that. Take care, folks. Have a great evening and I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.